welcome to the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borohovich. In the last episode, I absolutely loved getting to know Brent Vaughn, CEO of Cognito. Mid-January, Cognito received FDA breakthrough device designation for next-generation digital therapeutic in Alzheimer's disease. Today, I'm speaking with yet another trailblazer in the DTX industry, Peter Hames. Peter is the CEO and founder of Big Health. Big Health's company mission is to help millions back to good mental health. And with dozens upon dozens of peer-reviewed publications and at least 10 RCTs, Big Health is at the top of the list of most studied digital health companies to date. But before we dive in, Peter and I met way back in London when Big Health was just getting started. I am absolutely sure it was a dark and rainy evening in a small startup room where Peter and Dr. Colin Espy were showing off their initial go-to-market approach for their first product, Sleepio. And now we jump to my conversation with Peter Hames. I'm here with Peter Hames, CEO and founder of Big Health. Welcome to the show. And as we start getting to know about the people behind these brand names like Big Health, I'd love to get a little bit of the history. What drew you to, at the time, Sleepio and a little bit of your background? Thanks, Eugene. I was witness to some of these early... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> these early developments. That's right. Yeah. So it's been a winding road. Yeah. So I'm right now in San Francisco, but we founded back in the UK many, many years ago now. And the initial impetus was born out of my own experience of insomnia. You know, so got hit by not being able to sleep, did everything I could to try and get access to non-drug therapies, cognitive behavioral therapy. I know from my degree in experimental mm-hmm. psychology that that is you know, the first line recommended solution to chronic poor sleep. Couldn't get it. All I could get was sleeping pills from my doctor. So ended up out of desperation, really self-administering a course of CBT from a self-help book, a very manual process, like involved a lot of like photocopying out sleep diaries and doing maths and, you know, all this quite arduous involved work. (laughs) But in just six weeks, I was totally better sleeping like a baby. And that kind of blew my mind. And open my eyes to this totally insane situation, right? Which is that hundreds of millions of people across the world are suffering from insomnia, but also anxiety, depression, these chronic mental and behavioral health issues for which we have these proven non-drug interventions like cognitive behavioral therapy that no one can get (laughs) that are traditionally delivered by human therapists. And so that is what really inspired the idea that a pure software approach would buy us like the scalability and consistency of drugs and give us a vector to try and get effective care to the, you know, like I say, literally tens, hundreds of millions of people across the world with these problems that currently get nothing. That was the, it wasn't called the digital. big trigger for you. Yeah. And it wasn't called digital therapeutics back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was just going to get to that. But before we get to that, actually, you mentioned that I witnessed some of it. We were reminiscing about when was the last time we actually spent some time together, not just at a you know few minutes here and there. And it was actually in the early days, I want to say 12, 13. And Dr. Kalanespi, I think, was in the room and you guys were sort of like, this is what we're trying to do. This is what we're doing. But I want the listeners to get to know a bit you, Peter. So that's what brought you. But maybe give us a little bit of your background, actually, just, you know, as far as getting to this. Totally. So I I have the resume of a lunatic. Like it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But so like, <laughs> I founded, like my, my degree was in experimental psychology 
you know, so I'm not a clinician, but I do know the science behind, you know, these non-drug interventions for these problems. I've had this sort of winding path through everything from like advertising and marketing through to karaoke, believe it or not. Um, and we're not going to practice here. We're not gonna pra- no, we're not. It's been a while, probably a bit rusty, but um, I, you know, prior to what is now Big Health, worked for someone called Martha Lane Fox, who's very sort of prominent in the UK as you know, a tech entrepreneur, is now part of the House of Lords and was you know, really a pioneer that I learned a lot from. And you know, that's really what, where I got my grounding in the ability to sort of build digital products and take them to market. So yeah, so it's not, there's a sort of logic to it in the sense that it was what my education was based in, but um, there's certainly not a straight line in terms of my my background. But you know, I mean, that's, I think, the beauty of you now for eight years really driving because the precipice of it was your own challenge and your own problem. And you got a partner, you know, to give you the, the clinical view of it. I'm also sort of thinking back to that, you know, relatively dark room, 2012-13, right? What was the fundraising efforts where it's like, what, you know, digitized sleep therapy? What the hell is that? How does it work? How are you explaining this? What was the journey in the early days? Because to your point, that was just the term of digital therapeutics, I think, was just coming on the scene, for lack of a better term. Completely. And like, we, you know, you, you remember like in Europe in particular, I mean, globally, but in London in those days... Even like the idea of health, digital health wasn't really a thing. You know, there wasn't, there certainly wasn't a community or there was a very sort of small community. And, you know, if today we talk about models being like untested, back then it was really was like a lot of vision-based kind of work, like a you know, real belief in sort of fundamental needs that what we were doing related to. So to your point, like we, obviously we can talk about the move to the US, which is sort of pivotal, but... Like we bootstrapped for a long time and I think it wasn't until like 2014 till we raised our first institutional money, actually. Like we ran very lean and that I think really created a foundation of a culture which still remains to this day a big health of ingenuity, of kind of like using those constraints as to drive creativity, which I really believe in. We didn't take a stance where we tried to raise a ton of money, honestly, but there certainly wasn't an environment in which like Right. You know, as it is today, where it was a sort of known sector that, that investors were piling into. And by the way, you are correct. It was 2014. So I'm not a journalist, but I had to double check some data beforehand. So. Good. Good idea. It's a long time ago. So talk to me about that, I'll say, market entry, right? Because I know that you're very much of a believer in kind of consumer driven health and some of the early channels in UK. I mean, I, I remember people, you know, there's still some companies around that we both know, the founders that have navigated through NHS, et cetera. I think, and please correct me if I'm wrong, your concept was a bit kind of through Boots Partnership. I remember that was early on. Maybe talk about that path to go to market path and early trials and tribulations. So, and, you know, this is one of these things where like I have the luxury now of sort of hindsight and kind of sort of post-rationalize everything to make it look like it was a master yep. plan. <laughs> it wasn't. It really was a sort of winding case of like trial and error and feeling our way through. And as you say, like our first thought was let's just take this direct to consumer, right? And as you say, we had a partnership with Boots, the pharmacy chain in the UK had literally physical box products like on shelf, like next to the sleep medications. And it didn't work. And for me, through that process, obviously when we came to US, it, it was a really valuable learning process, which eventually made me realize something very simple, which was 
interventions such as CBT or cognitive behavioral based approaches, the reason that they're recommended as a as the preferred like first line intervention for many of these issues is because they're so effective at delivering long term outcomes, right? Like you, a relatively short course of an intervention can yield outcomes, you know, that last for many many years. Like the reason it's so exciting is because it's empowering. It's about teaching the individual to be their own therapist, and so in that context, that is a difficult truth to reconcile with like consumer. <laughs> like business models, right? Because if you think about it, our mission is to help millions back to good mental health, right? No asterisk, no T's and C's, like every decision in the company needs to be justifiable in a straight line as to how it gets us closer to that goal. And so in that context, what I realized belatedly was if we are really sincere about that being our mission, our commercial incentive should be aligned with that. As in like, we should be incented commercially to get as many people healthy like not needing us <laughs> as quickly as possible, right? And so what I realized was in that context is our customer is not the end user. Our customer is whoever economically benefits from that individual being healthy as quickly as possible. And that customer is therefore whoever pays their healthcare costs. And so that's why now we work with the NHS in the UK because you know we're on the same, we're now aligned. We're like, NHS is like, I want to get folks in my population as healthy as rapidly as well. I have greater economic benefit the faster you do it. And in the US, it's now, you know, we are focused on large employers and health plans, again, who are economically incented. So although, I mean, all to say like that, those early forays into consumer were so helpful when we came to the US because we arrived here with a conviction that we kind of knew where we were focused. So when you say consumer focus, it's interesting. I think you can dissociate who pays from the way in which you enroll individuals. And you know, where way we enroll individuals, you're absolutely right. I believe it's important. It's not disintermediated unnecessarily by prescribers and by other potential barriers. So was the aha moment to go to US when you already started working with NHS through that channel or did that come later? And what was that aha moment to go to US? If you recall back a bit, so the, you know, I love the UK, obviously, and huge sort of passion. You still have the accent. <laughs> maybe I've maybe even got even stronger since I've been here. I get way too much credit, <laughs> like over in the US, you've got a British accent. But um, yeah, so I love the UK. I think the NHS is one of the wonders of the world, genuinely. And that's why we've sort of continued to like invest in that over in the UK, like through all these years. However, historically, certainly when we were around, it was a really challenging place to get innovation adopted a like significant scale in healthcare, you know, so it's sort of strengths it also its weaknesses. And so it was honestly, it was a very top down, like, uh, as you say here, kind of Hail Mary to some extent, which was we'd raise this first institutional money from index to, you know, credit to Neil Reimer and a the team there for the vision to say, to have that big vision. Um, then that gave us this springboard to go, actually, we have the resources now that we can make that leap. And we were still very small at that point, maybe like 10, 12 of us, and just kind of got on the plane to California and didn't look back. You know, this is really where we've been able to drive the business scale. You know, it's interesting because there's a lot of discussions on this side of the pond in Europe about entrepreneurs scaling. Why are they focusing on the U.S. market versus staying and spreading, which is probably a whole podcast on its own, right? 
But, you know, one of the key things, and we keep talking about the consumer or health consumer, and what I want to try to do in this podcast series is also try to demystify what is that digital therapeutic? What is that experience? And, you know, maybe talk a little bit about, you know, obviously Sleepio, which is your core product, but also Daylight. What does that experience look like for me as an end consumer that's in one case struggling to sleep? And then you can talk about Daylight. The intent is to bring together like two elements here. So the problem, like I said, that we're trying to address here is the fact that 60 to 70% people with you know, clinical level mental health issues get nothing, like zero right now, not drugs, not anything. And so at a population scale, how do you reach, how do you feel like meet that gap, right? That like inequity in the way that mental health is delivered. And the solution needs to have certain qualities, right? It needs to be really scalable. It needs to obviously be really effective, clinically effective. And in order to effectively meet people where they are and engage them, it needs to feel more like entertainment than medicine. That's our philosophy. So the experience itself is, you know, via app, via web, like take Sleepio, it's very animation rich. You get greeted by your virtual animated sleep expert, the prof, his narcoleptic dog, Pavlov. You know, we might bound on, run in, fall asleep. I still remember that. And ask you a bunch of questions, take a sort of profile, and based on that, create a very personalized program over multiple weeks, CBT program. You can connect to your wearable devices if you have them to automatically import your sleep data, and then that will adjust and adapt the program based on your progress. And so, you know, we are now teaming up with, you know, story artists from Pixar to help build Daylight, as well as Ellen Horn, who is the founding exec producer of Radiolab, to help craft that audio experience. And Daylight really continues that insight that what we found worked really well with Sleepio, which is it's a fully automated experience, but it, we focus on making it feel human through this anim very approachable animation, the human voice and making it personalized, adaptable to each individual. So Daylight might empathize. If you've had a really rough time, you know, Daylight will react in a way, you know, we'll say, look, you're only on step three of this journey like, if you need help right now, let's just take a step back and rehearse some of the things that we've practiced before. So synthesizing that therapeutic alliance is a really key element of what we do. So experience should feel more like a consumer app, I want to say that, but deliver a really clinical grade therapeutic benefit to the individual. I'm always curious on, you know, as startups and companies evolve on sort of the original hypothesis of the business model and from those early days sitting in London to where you are now, how has it evolved? So as I mentioned, I think one of the biggest step change insights was the who pays. And genuinely for me, I'm a huge believer in just the value of staying laser focused on the North Star of that mission. Like, this is the value we're bringing to the world is helping millions back to good mental health. That is of such enormous value, like economically and socially, that if we stay laser focused on that, we'll be fine. And so I think the, that sort of revelation or kind of insight that actually we need to, this needs to be a reimbursed benefit was like really key. And so when we came to the US, it evolved hugely based on that foundation. And so in retrospect, again, I'm sure you can pay test into this, Eugene, like, you know, Benjamin Franklin, to misquote him, once said something like, wisdom is knowledge of your own ignorance. <laughs> and like when we first landed in the US, like I thought I knew about US healthcare and I knew absolutely nothing. Right. And so and now I 
think I know less than I did, right? <laughs> exactly. And so I think so we kind of fell on our feet, started focusing on employers, but didn't really know why that was such a great idea until like several years later. And so in terms of evolving the business model, it was a case of really getting to know that buyer and that payer and progressively refining the way in which we met their needs as well as the millions that we're trying to help get back to good mental health. And to the extent you can talk, because I know you guys are now partners with Willis Group. You're also in the formulary at CVS, which, you know, I've spent some time at a PBM, you know, years back, you know, just because you're in a formulary that may not actually mean anything, right? If you're not quote unquote prescribed or sold or recommended, right? So can you talk a little bit about the channels. And again, I know you have the North Star of the consumers, but can you talk about your lessons learned to date and through the channels? Yeah. I mean, even that, I'm a bit like a scratch record because it all falls out of that. I mean, if you think about the, the mission to help millions back to good mental health, what lives within that is also kind of an implicit go-to-market perspective, which is this is about volume and distribution to those in need has to be a very high priority. And so in that context, like a lot of the moves that we've made have been to just reduce the friction in that process. Like how can we retain the ability to reach out to and enroll individuals directly within a population and yet allow ourselves to be administrated in a very low friction way as the therapeutic that we are. <laughs> and so the partnership with CVS, I mean, we actually, you know, we were working with them on that you know, just the overall concepts of like a you know, digital formulary for, you know, a couple of years prior to that going live was because, and this is where I do think like having an external perspective can be really valuable. Like at that point, no one was talking to BBMs as far as I was aware about digital you know, therapeutics was, yeah, like, can we get this administrated along with the other therapeutics? And so that's, you know, in a nutshell, you know, the partnership with CVS, what it means is, is, is that what they now label as PSM, but at core means that we have an integration with their backend, which means that we can essentially raise, raise a claim when, you know, and what it means for the buyer or the customer is, is that it can be administrated in the same way as they do with the other therapeutics. So when they get a monthly invoice from CVS Caremark, it's, you know, CPO and Daylight are itemized on it, you know, alongside all the other therapeutics that their population might have used in that previous month. This is actually super interesting. So I spent 10 years at a PBM. I don't know if you knew that or not. That's actually what brought me to Europe to begin with. But, um, you know, we had call centers with pharmacists, thousands of them. And to me, the interesting part is if you think about you guys being in the formulary, human beings are still involved. And I know we started this discussion probably 10, 15 minutes ago around kind of self-administration, self-help. Where's your head around doctors, nurses, and even health coaches in the picture with your product specifically. And not to mention pharmacists that may get inbound calls or may need to, you know, adjust the dosage for lack of a better term. Totally. So yeah, to be clear, like, I think the clinicians, the provider is obviously an irreplaceably important like component of any patient's like healthcare journey you know, and take it to extreme, obviously in the NHS, GPs are the gatekeepers for all healthcare, basically, right? So like everything has to flow through appropriately through the GP. But again, my perspective on this is really driven by, well, a couple of things. Point one, again, I'm such a scratch record, but the goal is to get, you know, we have to have a volume level solution here is point one. Point two is, is these interventions are 
in the broader sense, you know, contextually, like low risk, like they're generally pretty safe, right? And you've seen that acknowledged by the FDA in the US, you know, even in the last like month or so, like and the emergency guidance they published around COVID, like, you know, these solutions are accepted as being, and we have a lot of like, you know, in the wild data now to support that as well as like, you know, prospective peer review data. And so you put those two things together and you say, well, I believe in a time in the not too distant future where, you know, doctors will, as a matter of course, prescribe digital therapeutics, but we are quite a long way from that being true. And it's going to be very expensive to get that to be the case. <laughs> and so my view has just been today is that given their low clinical risk, there are lower hanging fruit. There are just, there are ways that we can harness you know, digital therapeutics are not a panacea. They have a lot of constraints but there are also unique capabilities that pure software therapeutics bring you, such as being able to, people to get instant access from the link in an email. <laughs> like, and so I think that that is something that most healthcare is, is not able to do. And so that has really shaped my perspective on, essentially to say, you know, clinicians and providers remain a really important stakeholder group, eventually will be like a really significant distribution channel of digital therapeutics. But I just think in the meantime, there are other avenues and ways, more novel, inventive ways of, of reaching the people in need that don't rely on that whole group changing their behaviors and their workflows. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my journalistic partner on this podcast, Brian Dolan, who is the founder of Exits and Outcomes, and as I like to call him, the digital health detective. Let's see what question Brian has for our guest today. The last time I checked, Big Health's offerings have been part of 30 peer-reviewed papers and 10 RCTs. That has to put your company toward the top of the list of digital health companies with the most studies. How did Big Health manage to generate so much evidence? What is Big Health's evidence strategy and how has it evolved? Thanks, Brian. Yeah, no, and appreciate you acknowledging that. Actually, uh, it's a little bit more now. Like we now have actually 53 peer-reviewed papers and 13 randomized controlled trials, but you're absolutely right. I, to my knowledge, there is not another digital therapeutic in the world that has a larger evidence base of this rigor and quality. And that's really why we have been featured in you know leading clinical guidelines globally from American College of Physicians, you know, working closely with NICE in the UK. So yeah, I appreciate you acknowledging that. So our approach to clinical evidence collection, I mean, like it really started from the very earliest days. And again, usually you might remember from <laughs> the early days that we were probably had our first RCT in that very first meeting back in 2012, 2013. My co-founder, Professor Colin Espy, who actually like incidentally is the guy that wrote the book that I used to tackle my insomnia, takes all the credit for that. So he's at the University of Oxford. And again, from day one, we, given the mission, our perspective was really bottom up versus top down. This was not about a commercial strategy. It was about a philosophy, which was if we are striving to create true therapeutics, then we need to apply the same standards and rigor to them, whether it was digital or pharmacological. Like, and so we need, you no know, clinical evidence was like, always from an ethical perspective, like always a big part of what we believe was important. And so point one is, is this was designed bottom up versus top down. The way in which we generate that much evidence is the answer is kind of almost too banal, which is we support science. <laughs> 
So Colin, you know, being a sort of lead, world-leading clinical academic was very mindful. His colleagues would not, you know, thought he'd, quote, some quotes, join the dark side, like by getting involved in like a commercial entity. And so one of the first things that we did was publish a list of research principles publicly that we would commit to, such as, you know, we will support independent, they're still up on our website, you can look at them. We will support independent investigators, like if their protocols are IRB approved and they're rigorous, you know, we will not have any control over publication, like publish and be damned. Like if it shows it doesn't work, that's science. <laughs> and that gives us a direction to then improve or change what we do. And that has sort of over the years created this really virtuous cycle of really goodwill with the clinical and research community, which has meant, you know, we've attracted and collaborated with the leading researchers in the world because they know we're committed to good science. Their papers get published in, in the very top high impact journals. They're very highly cited. And as a result, more researchers want to, to work with us in support of their research. So it's one of these things that you can't really shortcut. It's been the product of like very sincere commitment over very many years to the value of science and true, you know, unbiased clinical evidence. And it's now snowballed. So now it's sort of the momentum has built year over year over year. And now, I mean, we, I can't even remember the number of studies we have live now, but it's, you know, incredible acceleration of evidence collection year on year. I'll jump in here. I mean, I think it also, you know, if I go back those eight to 10 years ago, when a lot of the digital health startups, you know, there was a number of just geeks and it goes to show that you brought Dr. Klinespi on board from sort of day one. And that allows you now to publish. I'm just kind of looking at that Sleepio drives greater cost savings than group CBT or drug therapy, right? Some of these, you know, having science at the core of it and very early on was, I think, the tact that you guys took that obviously benefited your, your scaling efforts. You know, since we're talking about, you know, better than drug, um, and you know, I spent some time in pharma and I've been asking pretty much every guest on this, you know, our digital therapeutic companies like yourselves will be quote unquote, potentially swallowing the pill inside. So you have an offering that's self-help offering that's better than a drug, but maybe there are, again, I don't want to pick any particular pills, but uh, that go, can go with you or not. Or is it the other way around? Once you guys get large enough, right? And substantial revenues, a pharma company that may have, you know, molecular therapies for this end up buying you. Just your thoughts, visions of the future on where do you think the market is going to go with this in the relationship with pharma? So again, my lens is like, what is going to help the most people as quickly as possible, right? How are we going to help millions back to keep mental health? Pharmacotherapy is a really important component of that. Like the world would be a lot worse place without like pharmaco, you know, effective pharmacotherapies. But, you know, as my experience that sort of led to the founding of, of what is now Big Health, you know, speak to, they're clearly insufficient, like to meet the breadth of need and preference in the population. And so I do think the, if you think at a sort of just like service design level, the end state here has to be, is going to be some combination, pharmacotherapy, digital therapeutics, but also, you know, human delivered talk therapy. It's going to be about a holistic, you know, there's going to be a holistic solution where hopefully more gaps are filled by virtue of the digital therapeutic being brought to bear. And so I personally like never say never, like, you know, I am not anti-drug, I'm pro-evidence. And to the extent that anybody in, from any industry is truly aligned with the mission to help millions back to good mental health, I think it's worth exploring, like, what can we bring to each other's, you know, how can we complement each other's assets and skills? 
in terms of kind of like the forward path here, I, you probably know better than me, honestly, <laughs> like you probably know better than me, given your experience at Bayer. Like I, my experience of, of pharma has been, they are just, you know, pharma is just such an enormous juggernaut with such deeply established ways of doing things and thought processes that I think it's going to take a bit of time for organizational learning to happen and confidence to happen at a scale where the true potential of any pairing will really be brought to bear. You know, I read it right now. I don't know what you think, but like pharma is still like so many of us, like understanding this space, just getting, getting his head around it. That's why my going title for the book that I'm writing is hard pill to swallow. So right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but again, separate podcast and discussion on that. <laughs> totally. So I, I, you know, I, my point is, is like, it'll happen eventually, but I don't know the exact path that that will take. And I think it's going to take a bit of time. And my view is, is that if in digital therapeutics, my own personal perspective is, is that we need to, which I think is the exciting thing is we need to invent our own new models. Like start from every therapeutic, new therapeutic class, you know, from like you know, biologics in like the late seventies, like look at more like genetic, you know, innovations more recently lend themselves almost like a completely fresh thinking about like, well, what is the value chain here? Like, how do we distribute? Like, and so I think with digital therapeutics more than most, there's so much opportunity that I think that we as innovators, it's incumbent on us to demonstrate that. And then I think folks like pharma will find it a lot more easy to come along with that journey. I don't think pharma are gonna, I don't think pharma are necessarily going to solve it, if that makes any sense. Yep. And, you know, I, I, obviously myself included, there is no right or wrong answer. And I think the field will play out. But I think this is part of the reason why I wanted to explore, you know, trailblazers like yourself, that there's many paths to take, right? Including, you know, more on kind of disease management 2.0 side, et cetera. But listen, with this, you know, we started with you, kind of who you are and how you got there. I'd love to actually conclude this with what gets you up in the morning? What is your why? I think I know the answer, but, but I'll let you speak for yourself. I uh, almost gave a glib answer there. Like, world domination is the... Um, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I thought you would answer, yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely not. It would probably be no surprise, like that purpose of helping millions back to get mental health is the thing that excites me and gets me out of bed. Like the, the When I look ahead at the enormous need, like I viscerally experienced it myself. I think most folks listening to this will either personally have experienced, you know, issues around sleep and mental health or know someone close to them who has and seen the impact that it has. And now knowing that we have a technology, a therapeutic technology that can actually, like we're only a few clicks away from genuinely being able to like transform like the lives of tens, hundreds of millions of people that is a thing that excites me, creating these new pathways, creating these new models, but most important, like seeing the impacts as a result. So that's the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. Awesome. Very well slept, obviously, when I get out of bed in the morning. Perfect. Perfect. Exactly. Well, Peter, thank you very much for making the time. And I am sure that our listeners learned quite a lot from you. Thanks so much. Likewise. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Eugene. Thanks so much for tuning into Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to hit that subscribe button to this podcast on your favorite podcast player, so you're then automatically notified when we post our upcoming episodes, where I speak with dozens of leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics.
If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Brian Dolan's Exit and Outcomes, you can always find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. You can connect with me personally on Twitter at HealthEugene or follow my journey of writing my first book, Heart Pill to Swallow, at heartpilltoswallow.substack.com. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.